Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adapting Zero Trust, or AZT. I'm Elliot, your co-host, mostly producer. Uh, We have Neil, our mouth and voice of the uh, podcast. And today we are going to jump into one of our newer territories. Uh, And for that, I'm going to actually hand this off to Galil, who is the co-founder and I believe CEO for NetFoundry. Um, Your background lends itself to uh, a significant amount of expertise. You have been in executive and entrepreneurial roles before, but um, maybe you can give us a little bit of background into what has led you to where you are today. Awesome, Elliot Neal, pleasure to be here. Yeah, for better or worse, 20 odd years trying to get packets from point A to point B with some security and reliability and (laughs) a few years ago, realized, hey, that's a little too hard. Why don't we try to reinvent the playing field, uh, build security into networking? And that led to the start of NetFoundry, which you mentioned. It also mentioned, it also led to the start of our open source, OpenZD. Excellent. Uh, and before I kind of jump into it, I do want to give a shout out to, I believe it's Philip, who has been very diligent in connecting us together. Uh, I think he actually hunted me down on Reddit after I was knowing people about Zero Trust, which I'd like to jump on the soapbox. So thank you for having such a wonderful and engaged team who's been really supportive of making this conversation happen. Um, but Great yeah, sorry. I love it. <laughs> they, they find us a lot of good conversations because they're enthusiastic for good reason. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, So really, there's two focal points that we're going to dive into today, and both of these are concepts that we have not had, um, you know, covered in past episodes. Um, So the primary one is we're going to focus on open source as it relates to Zero Trust, which is right up your alley. Um, But usually when people think Zero Trust and we're looking specifically towards the technology side of the house, um, you know, open source isn't really uh, the first thing that comes to mind. Usually you're looking at like sassy and very expensive things, whereas open source is more, you know, open in nature and not necessarily comes with a huge price tag, but requires some hardening and all that stuff. Um, So I'd love just uh, general, you know, what's your general take on, you know, why open source more than anything? uh, What value does it bring? And what is like the goal behind going open source instead of something proprietary? So the innovation enabled by open source as opposed to closed proprietary is reason number one. I'd say reason number two, especially when it comes to things like security networking, you don't always want to trust what the tin says. Like you want to get your hands on it, (laughs) get under the hood, uh, play with it. Number three, security. And I know this is controversial, but you know, go ask most folks what the most secure OS is and they're usually going to come up with some Linux variant. And that's for good reason. Um, yes, there's pluses and minuses to be an open source, um, but we can find plenty of examples out there um, where you can get that that magic that we like to say those three ingredients. You enable the innovation, um, you enable people to tinker, play, to see what's in the tin. Um, and 
a net result can be really, really secure. That's 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 why we've made the efforts to kind of build the OpenZD zero trust community. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely makes sense to me. Uh, and again, I think open source as it regards to cybersecurity is pretty impactful. People feel more involved, more empowered. They know what's under the hood. Uh, whereas proprietary systems, you know, uh, I, I don't want to like stretch too far, but if you don't know what's under there and you don't know how it's functioning, it's a little bit harder to kind of wrap your head around that. So that makes sense. I can certainly get that. Uh, and then Neil, uh, not only is he our resident threat intel guy, but uh, the community aspect is highly relevant to his space and what he does working with um, share threat intel, sharing organizations and groups to that extent. So I'm sure he is much more equipped to be able to kind of chat through the open source concepts and you know why that's so impactful. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a few stabs here for a moment. But uh, for me, open source, anything open source is always better for a community, period. I, I think it's important to have both privatized iterations of whatever that standard may be or that construct may be and have those industry verticals that are trying to do their own thing. And if we think about just OSs as your reference point, Linux versus Apple, you know, OS X versus Microsoft pick a flavor versus Unix and structural things like that in the day. Um, I, I think when you get topics of conversation that come out of the privatized iterations of some type of product, you have a very fixed way of looking at the solution and it gets very constrained into what's going to happen. And now they get their industry niche. They get what they do well. And they, you know, to be fair to OS X versus Microsoft, they do what they do very, very well. Um, but what they don't do very, very well is the things that a lot of the open source standards tend to pick up and made better initially. And for me, looking back on this stuff, uh, we look at like Apache web servers and, and versus IIS and things like that. When Microsoft first started trying to dabble in that world, you know, they sucked at it. <laughs> and they, point of perspective, they may or may not still, depending on what you like. Uh, so don't yell at me if you're a Microsoft fangirl for web service type stuff. But point being, they started something. Apache started something because they saw an opportunity to make things better as a community and actually listen to what people wanted to have done. Right. And I think because of that metric, both products actually became better. You have a standardized paid for product that you can get that you don't have to worry about doing a whole lot of things that does do typically what it says it's going to do. And that's about it. And you really have little say in where it's going to go after that because it's a big beast. Uh, but then you have open source standards that help push the barrier forward. And then at some point in time, the other dogs in the room tend to come back and look at those larger open source and see how they can start to listen to a community that's already bought and paid for it with their own blood and sweat and bring it back in. And then open source gets to go to the next echelon and keep moving forward. So for me, that's my perspectives on open source and why they're important. They drive both the privatized iteration as much as they do the community involvement aspects around security and other things and development. And I think it's a win-win for both sides. So it's kind of neat to see this perspective in particular. Uh, no, I love that definition, Neil. And, you know, the community, I can tell you, I mean, listen, we have a lot of innovators at NetFoundry but nothing compared to the community at large. And the reality is networking and security tend to be glue, right? Like not many people go build networks for fun of it. You build a secure network for a reason. Um, so if you could take some open source secure networking and use that as an open source ingredient into something cool that you're building or innovating or iterating on, you know, then some magic happens. Uh, so like that community aspect, you know, we feel is really relevant, especially to kind of glue type stuff, security, networking, OS, you know, things that you can build and innovate on top of. Yeah, agreed. So I, 
to Elliot's point, I work a lot with communities in general, both my nine to five and other stuff. And I know people who do actually listen to this podcast, probably getting sick and tired of hearing this, but I do a lot of stuff with ISACs and ISALs. So, so that you're aware, uh, I do a lot of community involvement type things, uh, both for the job as well as offline for my, my personal affairs. Um, I've never seen anything on any industry vertical grow without some kind of community involvement. Uh, you know, if you've got an idea, if the community's not bought into it one way or another, then why the heck is it even there? But more importantly, you know, we have a, especially in a startup world, if, whether you're open source project or a privatized project, whatever that may be, you know, we got a finite amount of resources to go towards things. And I think open source efforts are amazing at being able to drive things faster and, and more timely to the actual resolutions of what's needed. And so I think we'll drill into this a little bit more about what that means from the security nature of this here in a few seconds. But uh, yeah, I, I think soapbox slightly over, but I'm a huge proponent of the open source format of pretty much everything. And anytime someone forces me to use something that's not open source, I tend to scream, kick and scream a lot. Um, <laughs> I am doing this podcast on a MacBook, but I'm doing this on a MacBook with a VM of Linux. <laughs> so let's, let's I, yeah, different thing to think about, but it is what it is. So uh, <laughs> I try to squeeze it in wherever I can. <laughs> um, so on that note, thinking about this a little bit more verbose. So I know, you, like you mentioned, y'all are y'all are the open source community as it stands right now for Zero Trust. You'll have the projects that you have. So can you kind of just give us a little bit more highlight around the actual platform that y'all put together? And then we maybe we can kind of drill into what that means a little bit and then swing back into the security implications of an open source community in Zero Trust. Absolutely. Uh, I will try to stay away from the Zero Trust words itself a little bit to uh <laughs> to uh it's become cloudified right we, we uh, need a buzzer real quick sorry we we need a buzzer anytime someone's intelligent enough to say buzzword sucks this <laughs> we just need to get like an air horn bomb or something and just you know fireworks yeah, in the just background edit that in. we can make and, that uh, happen <laughs> we talked about like the tip jar right like every time you say those words yeah. like you put some money into the kitty um that can fund <laughs> something good you know like uh but I think words like, you know, micro segmentation and defense in depth and layers of security, well, those are more interesting conversations. So what does ZD enable you to do? You know, forget about the features and all that crap for just, for just a second. You have an application. You want that application to be delivered in a secure manner. You can take a ZD SDK. You can compile your application on that SDK. No matter what set of edges or clouds or networks your application is then going to pass over it's going to do so in a secure overlay and by security i'm talking about things like mtls and encryption and least privileged access um, if i zoom out just a little bit you could actually go without things like you're just you're going to take like all your open inbound firewall ports like your ACLs, and you're just going to go default deny all like you're never going to allow anything inbound on your firewall again. Outbound, you're only gonna to talk to a private overlay network. Um, same thing for your link listeners. You don't have to listen to the internet anymore. Uh, from a, you know, just slightly different perspective again, this is basically creating a private overlay on the internet, you know, without the, the horrors, let's say, um, of things like VPNs, port forwarding, RC1918 overlap, yeah, IP overlap space. Yeah. That that's the ideal, Neil. Make it really, really um, 
simple and secure. We think they're both important. Like if it's secure and not simple, forget <laughs> about it. Uh, for application providers to uh, control the network end to end. No, fair enough. So it's going to open up a can of worms for me. Uh, we, we actually talked about this loosely on the last interview that we just did, the last podcast, and we've hit on this loosely and some other things. Uh, but the flavor of the of all last year and a courtesy of SolarWinds the year before has always been supply chain risk management, right? And so you kind of hit on this a little bit around the implications of, of what zero trust, quote unquote, can bring to bear in this construct. And I think this is important. I mean, I, I imagine everybody should think this is important, but the implication of what you're producing and the validation checks that you're trying to build into this around that, that layered structure uh, and mitigate hopefully the next solar winds piece, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the implication here behind what you're providing is some kind of blatant strategy that's more than just email me and uh, password encrypted with the password infected, right? Yeah. It's crap like that. Uh... <laughs> Spot on. I mean, listen. I mean, listen. Solar winds. They just they lost the lottery, right? I mean, it could have been anyone, but <laughs> it, it was solar winds. Uh, and I, I'll use this example because Loop One is a. SolarWinds partner, they're a public partner of ours as well, right? So what Loop One can now say, just to use your example, Neil, um, as an MSP or as an MSSP, these folks, without some type of secure solution, are essentially conduits for the next problem, whether it's supply chain or zero day or configuration issue, or you know, the MSP themselves got breached. Now they're a conduit into their customer's network, unless mm -hmm. They can say to all their customers, you know what? No inbound access. I don't need public IPs. I don't want any of your firewall ports to be open, period. <laughs> you know, I want to be, I, I hate to say secure by default. Nothing's like totally secure. <laughs> um, but but you get the idea, Neil, right? Like like you, you Loop One can now go to like their SolarWinds customers or big time SolarWinds distributor reseller. They can now go to their customers and say, hey, we'll service you. And no, you do not need to whitelist a bunch of IPs. And no, you do not need to give me public IP addresses. That's that's how we try to make this thing a little bit more real to people. Yeah. So I have a quick curiosity question around this. And I think it's really cool. Maybe we can come back and unpackage the uh, SolarWinds Loop 1 connectivity. I think that's really neat to see and, and maybe highlight lessons learned that they've obviously had and, and what that means from your perspective for them moving forward. Uh, and hopefully some ideas around don't be too little too late approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I just incidentally learned about something this past weekend uh, that, that's supposed to be part of a supply chain mitigation strategy in, in Euroland. Um, and so I'm oddly curious, given what you're doing, if there's either tie-ins or if you're aware of the construct. And it's something called uh, TISAX, T-I-S-A-X. Um, and it's hosted by ENX.com as a another weird Euro thing. And, and I only bring this up only because... I looked at this and it was initially fixated on the auto industry and some other weird things. So I, I just didn't know if there's, if you've heard of it or if you have thoughts on this and how that's working from a supply chain mutualism perspective. Heard of it. Don't have intelligent thoughts because I haven't really looked into it. I'll say a little bit more generally, Neil, supply chain problems themselves, we're generally not going to help with. Um, we're essentially assuming that there are going to be breaches and vulnerabilities along the supply chain. There are going to be zero days. I am going to include some libraries that I don't really know all the dependencies for. Like there are going to be problems, but what we can do is we can assume that those problems are going to be there. And we're going to say, well, 
let's reduce the attack surface. Like rather than you facing the internet with a, a set of whitelisted IPs or VPNs or whatever horrible stuff you're doing there, um, how about <laughs> how about we shut all that down? So even if you do have a vulnerability, or, or better said, when you have a vulnerability, it can't be exploited from the outside. Like your pants aren't on fire while you go to address that vulnerability because it's not getting crushed from the yeah. internet. Um, so you still have to fix it, obviously. Um, but you can do so knowing that while you do so, you know, the, the, you're not getting, you're not exposed to the internet. That's, that's kind of the tie in generally, Neil, with those type of uh, supply chain solutions. They work, they work together like peanut butter and jelly, let's say. I would say yeah. you need both. No, that makes sense. So you kind of hit on a fun one uh, around attack surface and, and some other neat things here. So uh, with with the approach and securing some of these aspects, can you kind of elaborate a little bit more around uh, kind of y'all thoughts and approaches to that the attack surface or or someone one popped off a really good phrase yesterday, protect surface versus attack surface and other weird fun mm -hmm. stuff. But, uh, you know, you kind of allude to the fact that I, I like to poke and prod is it's not a matter of if, it's always a matter of when, and it's not a matter of, of you know, being able to secure the human. You're never going to secure the people in the loop. So you should always make the implication that something somewhere is going to get compromised at some point in time because people are people. Uh, so kind of drilling into that a little bit more and y'all's thoughts and approaches on, on that aspect of life and what y'all kind of consider for steps to doing things that are in that. Absolutely. I'll start with identity because we are taking advantage, of course, standing on the shoulders of giants, however you want to look at it, of a lot of very nice solutions that have been developed. Sorry about that, guys, on the if that phone is coming through. The identity, instead of an IP address, becoming really important. So X509 certificates, private public key, standard cryptography, like, like the standard stuff that most applications do, but putting that on the network. So basically saying like, hey, Neil, if you're going to let me talk to your server, you're not going to do so because I have an IP address that you trust. Nope. You're going to issue me basically an X509 certificate um, that says I'm Galil and I have access to these microservices, this five tuple set of things, whatever it is on your server. Um, and that obviously has to be cryptographically authenticated and authorized. Um, what's sitting in the cloud in the middle, in, in my little simple example between, let's say, my laptop and your server, Neil, um, are, is a fabric of nodes, routers that we built in-house. These are ZD routers, open source like everything else. Um, and basically what's going to happen, Neil, is your server is going to open up uh, outbound, <laughs> of course, an identified, authenticated, authorized socket. Um, and it's going to listen on that private network. Let's just call it one router to keep it simple, but it could be however many routers you put in the ZD network. Um, and my laptop's going to do the same thing. And if the policy says, hey, yeah, that identity can talk to this identity, given these conditions, and we can layer an MFA and all those good things and attribute-based access, then great, we're going to connect those two things. Um, and the obvious kind of result of that is now on both sides of the connection, like Neil on your firewall, you know, your inbound firewall rules say, well, deny everything. Like, I don't have to worry about Galil trying to request access to my server um, because I'm joining the sessions this way, outbound. Uh, 
that's the that's the main idea. Obviously, there's a bunch of tech stuff in the middle. We can go, we can dive into that stack if you want. Um, but the idea um, is start with a secure identity, validate it nine ways a Sunday uh, <laughs> at a least privileged access level, and let nothing else in. Yeah, so I think that fits fundamentally with some of the things we've discussed uh, prior. So on on that note, when we start thinking about uh, authentication paths, and I probably this is my lack of understanding more of what NetFoundry brings to bear and the platform as a whole. Um, but is there are there blockchain implications for what y'all are working towards, or utilization of the blockchain and that type of stuff for current or future iterations of the construct? No, think more CA certificate authority um, okay. bootstrapped into the ZD technology. Uh, that's the case both, Neil, with the OpenZD um, and the CloudZD. So the CloudZD is essentially managed, hosted fabric, that fabric that I was just talking about, those fabric routers. Uh, things like the CA are built right in. Now, if you want to use your own CA, you, you can do that too. Like we support RC7030, fantastic. Um, and you can set up a you know a, a series of trust. That's up to you, right? There's yeah. no such thing, obviously, zero trust, right? Who, who do you trust? <laughs> um, but... You don't want to get into the uh, PKI business. You can just use what's already built into ZD. That makes sense. And so you just touched on another fun pieces. The whole point is zero trusted. It's obviously not zero trust across the board. There's obviously at some point in the structure, there's some kind of implied trust that still is going to happen somewhere, somehow, sometime. Uh, but what you do to secure what happens after that is what's impactful, right? So you and I still need to be able to have a conversation because we know it's just you and me having a conversation. But what happens to the stuff that we're talking about afterwards? That I think is where people need to understand that back to the never really going to secure the human, but you can probably find a way to really secure the stuff the humans are using and talking about. So there's still some human in the loop, implied trust, but at the end of the day, you can still lock what they're touching down in the right infrastructure to to make sure we're not screwing it up, right? Com completely agree. And you know, because these concepts are all software that I mentioned, uh, you can do this for APIs, you can do this server to server. You know, you can do this for for any use case. Uh, you don't even need a human there to basically do the whole X509 certificate, you know, identity authentication authorization stuff that I just talked about. Um, all the core fabric routers and controllers and policies. That's all programmable stuff, right? Use your Terraform. You know, use your use your DevOps tools of choice. Hit the APIs directly. Use our web console if you want to, um, but essentially make the whole thing software instead of relying on a kind of series of human configurations. Yeah. So I, I love this. So we'll hit on the API piece some, as well. But when we start talking about uh, automation and some of the other fun stuff that goes in there, um, before we get down that rabbit hole, I have one last little question around the identity access management pieces that you're hitting on. Uh, this has been a personal curiosity of mine. I've talked about this on prior podcasts out of morbid curiosity. But there's the whole biometric fingerprinting things, passwordless security, this, password that, right? Uh, and before I ask the actual question, I'll caveat this by saying I don't think there's a world where passwordless goes completely there without your fingerprints being a little more exhaustive in the quote unquote zero trust mentality of what that brings to bear. Um, but I do like the aspect of the whole biometrically enabled constructs that the passwordless piece gets. Because at the end of the day, it's all ones and zeros, regardless of whether you're typing in a 500 character password or you're letting it scan your face and your fingerprints and, and looking at, you know, your pictures from 1999 on a BBS as a douche, right? It's all ones and zeros regardless. Uh, 
So my curiosity question then is passwordless security as a construct in this realm and being able to identify a user based off of what they're doing and applying that as part of these additional stop gaps for what's there, at least as an additional metric. Do y'all see a future for that within some of this build out? We're not, we're not doing it uh, directly, but we're doing it indirectly. So the only direct identity that, or fact, let's just call it an identity factor that we're adding is that X5 unknown certificate that we've kind of bootstrapped into the service. Really great. So if you have a server IoT device or something like that, that doesn't have a human in front of it, you can use that X509 certificate. It's going to sign its private key. You're going to be able to validate it. It's going to validate the servers it talks to. You're going to do all your MTLS stuff. Fantastic. If there is a human there, we support multi-factor authentication um, with whatever is there. So they have a YubiKey. Fantastic. Um, they're doing something more sophisticated with WebAuthn. They're doing biometrics. They're doing fingerprints. They're doing you know retina identification. Uh, we're not doing that, um, but our APIs are, are tying into it to say to allow you, Neil, let's say, to say, hey, for my super secure application, I require six fingerprints from Galil, two eyes, this, that, and the other thing, right? Like we'll just tie into to, to all those other layers. The three urine samples all, you know, from no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, so I think that's good. So that that's that's perfect in line with what I was hoping for from an answer. So this this kind of teases up a little bit where back to the impact of open source. You know, we get into certain things uh, where back to MFA as a construct, TOTP, you know, trivial one-time password as a standard. That That's not, that's an industry standard now, right? Obviously, so if you build some kind of MFA thing, you hopefully build it with TOTP in mind. But TOTP itself, uh, I know someone's going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was an open source construct that was industrialized uh, or at least started off private and then became an open source construct for standard. I, I have to go back and pulse check. But regardless, you know, being open source allows you to be more flexible in your approach to some of these security processes and grow a lot better. You know, if you get constrained, once again, back to the Microsoft OS X paradigms for both those companies, it takes them a long time to shift certain things that aren't specific for them to a larger, broader technology. Look at something as simple as USB, right? Thank you, people up here in Austin and, and Dell and the rest of the crew that originally invented USB. But Mac abhors it still to this day. They try to fight tooth and nail for a long time to keep Lightning as their own data standard. So much so when they put USB-C on the box, they just relabeled Lightning, USB-C Lightning for a while. And now it's no longer Lightning, it's just USB-C. So we've had USB as a standard for a very long time. But fighting tooth and nail to keep your own industry standards and, and applicability, open source avoids all that. Hey, this is a great idea. Sure, we'll incorporate USB into this today. We'll also incorporate B, C, D, F, whatever it may be, um, until one wins out. It's like old school Betamax versus VHS. They were both there for a while until a very illicit industry picked one up over the other and made it financially feasible for everyone. But uh, more on that podcast later. Uh, but point being, I think that's the wonder, wonderful, powerful thing about open source tech. You're not constrained because someone at the table is like, no, I only like this and I will only like this. You have a community that speaks. You have a community that breathes and lives for whatever it is they're working on. If they like USB-C, USB-C is going to be there. If they don't, it's not going to be there. Um, yes. Things like that. So I think that's that's a fun thing. Um, yeah. And by the way, we uh, so TOTP you mentioned, and that is exactly um, how we do our MFA integrations. It makes it really, really easy for us, right, Neil? We support any TOTP source. 
um, have added on your side, right? We don't have to go support six different things. Uh, yeah. Same thing. We've seen, you know, the Kubernetes world, a lot of open source there. Um, so people have done a lot of integrations between ZD and open source constructs on the Kubernetes side. Um, even things like Spy or Spiffy on the identity side. I'm sorry, because I forget one of those is open source and one of them isn't. One of them is based on the open source. But either way, like Spire or Spiffy on the identity side, um, OPA, Open Policy Advisor, like there's so many cool open source things out there. Um, and we like to give our community the opportunity to integrate with those things. Yeah, no, I mean, that's awesome. I think it's perfect. So on that note, kind of moving into API security and structure, uh, I had a wonderful conversation with an entity a few months back that basically said, you know, we need y'all to not be reliant on just API authentication, right? Just the standard uh, pathways that everybody uses right now, because it's just like anything else. It's not exactly that great. Uh, so can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on the API piece? I know once get certificate authorities, things like that, but building a better, building a better API world, I think should be of everybody's interest. Yeah, I almost divide it into two parts. So, so layer four through seven, we have a lot of stuff today for APIs, um, a lot of the authentication authorization stuff that you're mentioning, um, a lot of really good work. Increasingly, hate to use another buzzword, but increasingly there is some good AI ML stuff going in there, right? Um, that's all layer four through layer seven. That, that, that's really, really important. It's necessary, but, but it's not sufficient. Why? Because at layer three, you still have a public API. So yeah. if you have a zero day, <laughs> if you have a business logic problem, if you have a misconfig, if you have an author authentication or authorization bug, and and I know like, no, 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 we'll never have any of that. No, 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 they'll always have those things, right? Um, that's kind of where we come into play. You know, we say, you know what? Just like we used to do things like private MPLS-based networks because we didn't want things to face the internet, um, even VPNs, although usually the implementations are pretty sorry, the idea was let's take things off the internet. Um, the only reason we really didn't do that with APIs is because, well, they're APIs. Like there's thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of clients. Um, you know, like good luck putting all that stuff on VPN or MPLS. Like <laughs> we have to face the internet. We have no choice. Um, and that used to be right. But but we finally realized, you know, there's, there is one way that you can kind of scale with code and it's to be code. Um, so basically what we do is we, we say, okay, the API provider, instead of saying, okay, here's your block of code that's going to query my public facing API, um, we give them a couple extra lines of code in the form of these ZDSDKs that I mentioned earlier. Um, and those just few lines of code added to your API server, if you're querying my API now, Neil, um, we'll, we'll kind of reverse that client service um, that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, you want to query my, what used to be public API. I'm going to say, hey, Neil, sorry, I don't really like facing the internet anymore. Um, good news for you, you don't need a VPN client or an MPLS circuit or any of that awfulness. I will give you, instead of block of code, you add it to your existing API query. Um, and what's going to happen under the covers once you do that, it's going to do all that X509 stuff I talked about. It's going to use that private CD fabric I talked about. It's going to do some optimized routing. It's going to do all kinds of cool stuff. But from your perspective, your life is the same, plus those couple lines of code. From my perspective, as the API producer, the, the person who's offering you that API, now on my API gateway or my WAF or my load balancers or my firewall or whatever, whatever my API edge is, I'm taking that thing off the internet, right? Again, default denial. Instead, I'm going to open outbound connections to that private ZD fabric because I know in order for Neil to get on that fabric, 
he's going to have to do a lot of stuff to prove who he is <laughs> um, and consume my my API. So that's that's the general API story. It's almost like taking private APIs um, and making them accessible over the internet, you know, without being exposed to the internet. Like you're going to use the internet, but you're not going to get used by the internet. That's the idea with the the API, the secure API story. No, that makes sense. Uh, so I, I think what's really cool about this, you know, there's a lot of obviously emphasis on, uh, or a decent amount of emphasis on, like you started off with the identity access management as a root, which th that's obviously a very clear thing. That's you got to start there. You got to secure that aspects of it. So that's kind of a neat way to think about how to do that. And, you know, I, I know there's some people who talk about API as a construct in the sense of authentication, kind of going the way of the dodo at some point in time. Uh, I think this starts to do that from a core competency perspective, what, what it means to be API, because there's the authentication aspects of an API, but then there's the actual data layer, right? That what's going on within that connectivity. The connectivity can still exist without API as a standard for authentication. And I think that's important for people to understand. And then you secure the auth, you secure everything else that goes along with it. And then now it literally is just a data layer standard at that point, which would be really cool to see. Um, Oh, so that, thank you. That's kind of a neat perspective on it and, and the handshakes that go into doing this. And I think the big implication here for people to understand is it's also not making it necessarily more complicated in the grand scheme of things. It's just securing the process more thoroughly. And once you build out the process, it's still the same thing at the end of the day to go and connect, really. It's just you've done the right steps to make sure it is a more secure and robust piece to keep other people from doing the same. You said it so well, Neil, because the reality is usually if you can simplify something, you've also made it more secure in many cases. Um, and we have a lot of cases, uh, I'll use IoT as an example. Um, things like smart meters, smart lockers, uh, these type of things. These traditionally are just a pain in the ass because you have to manage them from the outside world. Um, and let's just say I have a, a smart locker and it's, you know, sitting Neil, uh, let's say you're running Whole Foods, it's sitting like on your Whole Foods network on Amazon with my smart locker, right? Um, you know, I don't, and I'm providing that smart locker. I don't want to go to you, Neil, as the firewall administrator for Whole Foods and say, hey, bud, um, I need some open firewall ports for RDP, SSH, and my APIs. Don't worry, it's cool. Um, <laughs> or I need some static IPs. Do not change them because we're going to whitelist them, blah, blah, blah. And if you change them, everything breaks. Don't change these IPs. Um, or I need support forwarding and, and like all this crap, like it makes it really, really difficult for like almost every IOT device. So like what happens, a lot of them end up either offline. So now if I want to do an OTA update or manage them, I have to do a truck roll, um, to who knows where, um, <laughs> uh, or I do something pretty awful. Like I have open inbound ports into this thing, uh, and I am doing static IPs and I am open to lots of our attacks because of RDP and SSH and all that stuff. Um, so with this type of solution, you simplify all that, Neil, um, and you say, you know what? Guess what? I, I get it. You need the APIs. You need RDP. You need SSH. You can have all that. But you don't need open inbound firewall ports, and you don't need public addresses, and you don't need static addresses. There's another. There's a new way. There's a new art of the possible to make this thing more simple for you. No, it's awesome. I love it. I'm... I'm... I'm all for it on this net. So this is a good deal. Uh, I just lost my scroll back on my notes. So give me one second. I had one thing I wanted to revisit real fast was, so we talk about, you know, APIs, 
uh, can't read my own handwriting there. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. So I, I think once again, kind of iteration on this, uh, securing these, these common pathways until we can come up with a better, I, I would say, I mean, in a sense, if we start to provide this layer of capability, then what's really neat, I think is security gets more, more standardized at a strategic level for the entire server systems and, and infrastructure that you're running. Right. I, I think is probably kind of how I'm starting to see this with, from y'all's perspective, where we talked a little bit about API is both a standard of how to interact, but it's also brings with it its own security layer. Right. And, and what that means for it, RDP, all these other things have their own key exchanges and all this other security layers and BS that goes with it. And so, you know, whether it's, port, you know, open up a particular port for whatever, whether it's uh, securing a particular protocol for that standard, whether it's having a just a simple username and password, but still it's being handled under that protocol variant, whatever that may be. All those things are additional echelons of uh, protocols that can be compromised individually and uniquely. So I think when you start talking about wrapping this up into a larger paradigm, then maybe the longer term implication is hopefully the security protocol once again moves away from those paradigms and they do become data standards like they sh kind of already are, but focused on that and making that better. And then the security standard is this larger wrapper that's already standardized at a bigger scale for those communications pieces, right? That's it. That's it. You know, I, I mean, this, this isn't new per se. Like we've tried to do this with things like MPLS for years and years and years. The, the things with MPLS, it's like boxes and wires. Like they can only go so far. Um, and they were fine when, you know, we we're talking to branch office, talking to headquarters, talking to data center, like terrific boxes and wires, great, um, expensive boxes and wires, but go just do it. <laughs> now, what we said is turn it into software um, and do it by design, like make the application the new edge, the app itself, like mm -hmm. rather than building this expensive network, trying to secure the network and then throwing the apps on top of it, say, OK, let's just kind of reverse this whole thing and let's say if you want an application session, you need to, to kind of procure your own little secure overlay with software um, before we're actually going to allow said connection um, and make every one of them ephemeral, software, identity-based. You know, we let, like we say sometimes, Neil and Elliot, we say the app is the new edge. That's kind of what we mean by that. Like, forget about trying to secure the network. Like you're never going to secure a network. <laughs> but um, if I give the power to the app and I give the power to the developer and I give the power to the DevOps team, the NetOps team, whatever we're going to call these teams these days, okay. And I make it all software. Now I have a chance. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the goal. That's kind of, yeah, I like that. Um, thinking about, uh, you know, what that means for you, you touched this loosely IoT as an example, but Cloud, another buzzword, right? Cloud is a buzzword, has been for a while, but it is what it is. There, there's been people putting stuff in other people's boxes on the network since we invented networking. Uh, cloud is just another marketing fun way to say, hey, look, I can do more storage than they can. Uh, that, that being the idea, though, the, the construct of moving things off-prem, uh, I think has, funny enough, it ebbs and flows, right? But I think the construct of finally putting very sensitive things in a service provider like AWS, Microsoft, whoever it is, it has kind of taken off over the last couple of years, not because of COVID. I think it just happens to coincide with COVID a little bit more. But the standards for cloud security and things like that have also been highlighted a lot more verbosely over the last few years. So 
with the mentality that y'all are approaching things, you know, a lot of questions people have traditional security process is, you know, we had this defense in debt, we had this uh, hierarchical structure in our firewalls and our gateways and DMZs, all these other fun things. But now almost everything, including your desktop VM is being launched out into something in AWS world, right? Different threat vertical in and of itself that people are finally becoming more comfortable with. So back to this paradigm, securing the apps, I think is more important than ever because probably in the next, who knows, five, 10 years max, most enterprises won't have anything physically located in their own office space from a data perspective, except some very, very specific requirements, more than likely. Everything will be app-driven almost exclusively. Yeah, and I think, Neil, the uh, kind of inconvenient truth, like if you look at the quote-unquote like shared responsibility model, I, th I think is what they call it. Yep. What does shared yeah. responsibility model really mean? It means you, Neil, you, Evan, you, Galil, you're responsible for the networking between the clouds or between your private data center in the cloud or between your user or IoT devices or APIs in the cloud. Like, that's you. Like, we, AWS, Azure, GCP, whatever, like, that's not us. That's you. That's your part of the responsibility. Well, guess what? That's the hard part. Um, and so that's why we see, like, I was joking about MPLS kind of before, like, it's so funny, like, the cloud is completely tethered by MPLS. Like, okay, we call it Express Route if it's Azure, or we call it Direct Connect if it's AWS, and I forget what the other ones call it, Fast Connect for Oracle. What is it? It's just MPLS circuits. Like VPN, same thing, like Kubernetes. Like I might have my Kubernetes in, in GCP and Oracle and Azure. The minute I need to go north-south, guess what? VPN. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So so it's it's like the, the kind of inconvenient truth that, that we've kind of punted on all this. Um, and I, I think the the consequences are very plain. Like you see, like you know, a cyber attack every single day. Um, <laughs> um, but but I'm not so sure that we've we've kind of like put everything together and realized like, okay, well, wait a minute. This like this networking thing between these clouds. You know, it's it's pretty darn important. And and maybe we just need to shift the playing field a little bit um, and play by a different set of rules. Yeah, definitely. I I also see a world where the concept of VPN as a security mechanism uh, indirectly kind of starts to go away with the right procedurals. Because once, I mean, in, in a high level, not real, but kind of similarity, when you're doing these microcosms of security between the comms lines and, and doing this zero trust approach to things in a roundabout way, it's kind of setting up its own virtual private thing, right? Obviously, there's the handshakes that go on. That's a unique handshake between the two entities doing their things, validated, secured in multiple fashions. And VPN in and of itself, in its name, it's still a network. If you can get in through the front door, you're still in. There's still a lot of other stuff going back and forth. And when we start talking about server-to-server -server comms and things like that, you still compromise the gateway, you're still in. And at, at the end of the day, to everything at that point. That's, that's it. That's it. You're, you're I mean, you might be trusting a slash 24 or a subnet or everything on a certain host. And not only you're trusting it, you're exposing it. If that thing gets, yeah. you know, so in some ways, like even what we do, um, you know, call it an application specific VPN, you know, with identities instead of IP addresses and with, you know, fabric and all this stuff, but that micro segmentation and isolation is pretty darn important. Um, because, like I mentioned earlier, like, well, anything can be hacked. Well, you know, so can our stuff, right? But you somehow kind of hack 
um, our application micro-segmented stuff, well, that's what you got. You know, you have access between like this five tuple and this five tuple, and you want to use it to like attack laterally, you don't have a connection. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's not there. You don't have access to an entire slash 24 or subnet or host mm -hmm. or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, you want to take those encryption keys that like you just got because you're running quantum in your basement um, and you want to apply them to another session. No, every session is keyed independently because everything's done on a session by session, application by application basis. Yeah. That, that's why I think that, that, that micro segmentation isolation are pretty darn important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the fun part, you know, from a long-term security implication perspective as a whole, everything gets secured by proxy of needing, you know, it's a need to know. So working in the government side of the house, this, I think this is the one thing that kind of blows my mind a little bit out here when I first came out to the, uh, uh, to the private side of the house, moving away from public sector, military stuff. You know, when we're talking about classified information, we've had the con the, the fundamental ideology around, uh, proof of verification of, you know, who you are at some layer before you get access to a particular data set. And it's, it's session by session to some extent, right? So on, on our classified networks back in the day, what we're doing here in the real world now is very, very similar to just a basic layer of what we kind of applied things on the classified domain. I had my security clearance that went along with my identity. I had to validate my actual self being me on a recurring basis through various PKI and, and, physical card, you know, CAC and all this other junk every time I wanted to do stuff and then random pops up all this other junk. Uh, I think what's really neat about all that, we were doing that for a very long time and the companies, people taking part in this, they're in my age bracket that had to put up with that crap for the first time on the government side where that more automated need to know process was at play. So it's kind of neat that this side of the fence is, is catching up to that and we're calling it zero trust. But the reality is we're going a lot more we're going a lot further beyond what we did over there on the government side, thank goodness. But I love the implications for people like me who had to deal with something similar from identity access control to bring that out here. And then all that to say, my age bracket of people have an implied desire for that layer of action here anyways. So the last piece of that being adoption and kind of where you see adoption within your own community and growth as large, because we see the idea of zero trust, the NIST standard, the rewrite, and all the other stuff that just recently came out, government adoption as a term formally last year, things like that. So on the last nuggets, speaking of all the adoption, the growth, the bandwidth, and things like that that you see within your community. Yeah, a few use cases. We mentioned a couple of them. Remote management, you brought up the solar winds, Kasaya type examples. Uh, you know, listen, if you're an MSP, an MSSP, if you're a provider and you have connections into customer environments, and if you're successful, many customer environments, like dozens or hundreds, probably safe to think of those connections uh, as conduits for potential bad stuff, malware, breaches, bad actors, whatever. Um, that's why I think some of those folks are moving at the forefront because they have more exposure, right? They they might have hundreds of customers uh, and they saw what happened with SolarWinds and, and Kasai and everything else. So folks who are managing software on other people's networks or who are managing other people's networks, that's like one category. We see IoT as a whole nother category. Um, and, and again, this is literally everything from, from smart meters to smart lockers uh, to surveillance cameras, you name it. 
those things are, are really, really hard to secure. Again, there's not a human in front of them. Like even if you wanted to do MFA, you couldn't do MFA. Like um, that's a, a second category. And the third category is probably the, the pretty obvious ones. And it includes MoGov and it includes FinTech and it includes your normal compliance, regulatory, security, conscious verticals, throw in some geofencing in there and those type of requirements, you know, so, so regional type stuff. Uh, and you have kind of the third leg of, of this, this movement. Um, and again, Neil, I, we can use the zero trust for, term that that's fine. Um, but I think it's, it's more of a recognition that in today's like hyper-connected world, when my assets are like all over the place, <laughs> um, I, I, I need a little different strategy. Um, than essentially boxes and wires. Um, you know, I, I need a layered approach. Um, I need an ecosystem. The atom, if you will, has to be the actual application. And I need to do this thing all as software. I need it to be simple, to your earlier point. Yeah, so uh, appreciate you running us through uh, the technical aspects and uh, open source and API. Uh, I hope you don't mind pivoting over towards sort of the business side of the world and perceptions around you know, ZT, uh, ZTE, ZTNA, those kind of elements. Uh, so I personally love, uh, I don't need to center myself, uh, shit talking VPNs. Um, no one likes them, uh, but I would love to get your input, you know, as an organization that essentially replaces VPNs in many use cases. But um, what is the general conversation like when you say, hey, you have VPNs, they suck, your people, they don't like them. Um, you know, what does that conversation look like? And uh, as a secondary piece to that, um, is it realistic to say it can be a full replacement or is it, you know, based more of a use case scenario where like large organizations probably still have some situations where VPN apply and you do that. But um, between the two, I'd love some input on what that looks like. Yeah, typical conversation, take a SaaS provider or an ISV uh, who is providing their services and software in a distributed manner, you know, to like lots of people or devices or both. For them, they're like amongst like, you know, if there was a uh, crowd of VPN haters, like they'd be at the front of that crowd. Um, they're dealing with RC1918 space overlap. Did I miss say that? RC1918 space overlap. Uh, they're dealing with the need to ask their customers for things like, public IPs and static IPs. They're nailing up these VPNs. Um, there's a cost to doing business. Like you, you mentioned the business side, right? Like every time, like if I'm a very successful ISV, and, and these are usually the type that are selling to franchises, uh, distributed places, et cetera, where they today need a VPN. It's like my cost of business, like, oh great, I just closed a hundred new stores. Oh, not so great. I gotta go nail up a hundred more VPNs. <laughs> Um, so like, like those guys, their, their business case is like, usually on the operations side, it's like, oh, if I take the ZDSDK and I build it into my application, then my users or my devices, they just light up my app the same way they do today. And I don't need to go have a conversation with their infosec team or their ops team about VPNs and static IPs and open firewall ports and like whitelisting and ACLs and like that's just gone <laughs> it's like 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 their business case ironically it's not even always about security um sometimes it's about good old operational efficiency and speed and automation 
Um, that said, on the security side, and you know, Neil referenced the the U.S. government, you know, mandate earlier in this conversation. There's definitely more awareness that oh, just because I have a VPN, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm secure. <laughs> um, and so, so that 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 drives some business as well. I I do think, ironically, with all like the zero trust hype, um, and the fact that folks have replaced a lot of VPNs with zero trust, I actually think a lot of that was during COVID when actually people just wanted something easier. Like it was like, oh, today I, as an IT department, I manage 50 VPNs and it sucks. Tomorrow, all my people are going to be at home, including my executives, including this, and I'm going to manage VPNs for all those people, like, and deal with their trouble tickets. Like, like, thanks, but no thanks. Is there a better answer? Oh, you have something simpler called zero trust. I'll take some of that. Like, like, you know, a lot of these people bought this zero trust from vendors they knew, and I'm not even going to talk about whether it was really zero trust or not. I don't even know what that really means, right? But, but better what they really what they're doing is they're buying a simpler VPN. Um, I really think that drove a lot of the adoption in the last couple of years. I do think what drives adoption in the next few years starts to look more like the conversation we had in terms of this is my need for security. This is what I mean by defense in depth. This is what I mean by least privileged access. This is what I mean by mitigating my risk exposure to me and my customers and my partners and my suppliers. Like it actually, I think, will become more of a security conversation than it has been in the last couple of years. So that's, that's my view of, of, of how we see anyway the, the business side developing. Excellent. And I fully appreciate your take and calling out um, some of those basically cloud VPN solutions or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Frankenstein creations that they've created a certain organization that has created like a zero trust certification, even though it's really more like a technology certification towards their thing that just rubs everyone the wrong way. And it gives the whole concept zero trust, the wrong name. So that is the premise, uh, the antithesis of why we've created this podcast is, you know, to have conversations. And it's just great to be able to talk with people who are providing relevant technology to the space, who are very open and transparent about, you know, the reality and what is, you know, consciously just not there. There is some implied uh, implicit trust and it cannot be fully removed. There is no silver bullet and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. 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 And don't get me wrong. I mean, listen, the, the zero trust term was like 2010. Like, like it made sense back then. Like, don't trust the network. It, it's just like now you're like, well, yeah, of course I'm not going to trust the network. You know, why don't we talk about what I do need to trust and why and how I'm going to implement it? It's just a different conversation than it was in 2010. Um, that's why it's it's a little bit ironic that the term now, you know, has, has all of a sudden, you know, now it's like a product I can buy. No, it's not a product I can, like, really? I'm going to buy zero trust? What else can I buy from you? Can I buy DevOps from you? Can I buy <laughs> some AI, some cloud? So, I mean, it, it's just not something you can buy, right? It's a, anyway, sorry. I, I don't want to get on like a soapbox at the end of our media, but, but yeah, Elliot, I, I agree. Love it. No, and that soapbox is exactly where we float. So, (laughs) so with that said, I will not go too far further past that rabbit hole. But uh, where can folks learn a little bit more about what you have obviously put out in the world, uh, and then also get involved on sort of the open source side? Open source side, just Google OpenZD. Um, What you'll find is our GitHub's. You'll find our discourse Uh, because we're passionate about what we do you're going to see on those discourse, you're, you're going to see fantastic conversations um, where 
everyone on the OpenZD team, CloudZD team are out there just working with our peers, working with other developers um, to innovate on OpenZD. Uh, by far the easiest way. Uh, you want to try the SaaS first, which again is just the hosted version of OpenZD. Uh, again, that's CloudZD. You can do that as well. Uh, we try to make that really simple as well. You can go do that for free, self-sign up. Um, it's free forever for up to 10 endpoints. Um, it's depending on what you're trying to do. You know, you want to kind of see it in action uh, and you want to do that easily and see if it's something you care about. You know, go do CloudZD. Do the, uh, do the, the like I said, free up to 10 endpoints. If you like what you see, um, if it's giving you some results and you, you want to get deeper, go to the OpenZD um, and start innovating or vice versa. You know, you want to you play with the code itself before, you know, you want to play with the SaaS, absolutely start on the OpenZD side. It's, it's dealer's choice, if you will. Excellent. So thank you so much for that information and sharing some of your insight and expertise. Um, you know, this is not an area that we've been able to jump into uh, in the past, but um, open source obviously has a strong future as it relates to zero trust in general. API is obviously a very big thing, and I won't smash into any headlines for recent breaches, which obviously API is <laughs> very, very relevant. Uh, we try to avoid that particular topic, but we don't name <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so again, just thank you so much for uh, you know being our guinea, one of our guinea pigs for this kind of a newer format, being able to chat through the technology side of the house. Yeah, good conversation. Uh, appreciate the dialogue. Always good to talk to folks who are. Uh, working on the same type of things we are. And again, quite frankly, it's exciting to me. I mean, just as an app developer, the fact that you can, you, I mean, forget about ZD, right? You are going to be able to, with some type of technology, hopefully open ZD, uh, you're going to be able to embed zero trust networking into your app, uh, get end to end security, visibility, control compliance, pretty darn cool. Um, so looking forward to working with folks to continue making that happen. Pretty darn cool. Um, so looking forward to working with folks to continue making that happen. No, it's just uh, what we already mentioned. Get your butts involved in open source somewhere, somehow. If uh, obviously now you know where to go for zero trust. If you're uh, if you're into the open source world and giving back, or at least being curious about what it looks like under the hood more, here's your chance. So look forward to seeing what it brings. And, and thank you again, Galil, for jumping on with us today. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors. Neil Dennis has the best beard I've ever seen, and that's on Zero Trust. <laughs>